0: Welcome to Uplifting Women podcast. This podcast is sponsored by UpliftingWomen.net, as well as Holly Teska Coaching and Consulting and Regent Leadership Group. Join our co-hosts, Holly Teska and Kristen Strunk, thought partners in the world of leadership, equality, and personal and professional development. Listen as they bring stories of inspirational women and their allies who are working every day for authentic leadership, equality, and inclusion in business, education, and community. These are the stories of the people whose mission it is to ensure others are seen, heard, and respected. They have overcome challenges in the workplace and the world or supported other women in doing so. Holly and Kristen are committed to uplifting women's voices, sharing inspiration, advice, and maybe even a few laughs from women and their allies about the work they are doing to promote inclusion and equality in our world. They believe that by sharing stories of challenge and triumph, we can all make the world a better place as we inspire others to step fully into their personal leadership space. We are so happy you have joined us today for our conversation.
1: Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Uplifting Women podcast. This is Holly Tesca here with my co host, Kristen Strunk. And today's guest is Lori Lee. Lori is from Hawthorne Woods, Illinois, and now she lives in Algonquin, Illinois with her husband, Rob Lee. Her passions include family and friends, adventure travel, scuba diving, her pets, her business, which is Swift Passport Services, which I'll let you explain. She loves the outdoors and transplant. Lori is a non-directed kidney donor, and I'm going to let her explain to you what that is, whose donation sparked a six-person transplant chain on November 22nd, 2016, She was compelled to become a donor after her father, Dan Dickinson, received a life-saving liver transplant in 2011. And your story is simply fascinating. Not only starting at the beginning where you were working in the Forest Service (laughs) and where you met your husband, but then you guys went on to create your own business and you have a podcast about living donor Organs and what a story. So, I'm just going to be quiet and let you take us back to the early years of where did Lori Lee start and how did we get to where we are today?
2: Well, thanks for having me, Holly. Um, So, how far do you want to go back? Do you want to go back to the Forest Service? How you came to
1: establish the business that you and your husband have, I think you almost have to include the early parts of your. Your journey, how you went to South America to work?
2: Sure. So I went to college at the University of Montana, and my focus of study was wildlife biology, aquatic wildlife biology. Um, growing up, I had a family of entrepreneurs. So my dad's a very successful entrepreneur, and I was just kind of always surrounded by people who had their own gig. So you might think that I would have gone to college for business. And in hindsight, that probably would have been a really good idea. But I can tell you that the wildlife biology degree was a lot more fun <laughs> to get than a, a business degree. So while I was in Montana, uh, I worked for the Forest Service and it was a fire sciences lab. So we studied fire. We studied the effects of fire on the environment. My job was to drive around to the most beautiful places of Montana and Idaho and collect data So I'd get in the car, sometimes with other people who worked with me, sometimes on my own, and I would just drive, and I would just get to see the most beautiful landscapes, and I loved my job. And it was in that job that one summer I had to cut down trees for for part of my job position. And of course, if you're going to cut down trees, you need to take a chainsaw safety course. And that's where I met my husband. He was a chainsaw safety instructor for a different branch of the Forest Service. You know, I met him and we became friends very, very quickly. But I was in a part of life where I was ready to leave Missoula, Montana, which is where I was. Um, And right about when I met him, I got a job offer in Costa Rica. And so I jumped at the opportunity and moved to Atenas, Costa Rica, and I worked for the School for Field Studies down there. They have a Center for Sustainable Resources. Um, So it was working with college kids, uh, lots of adventure, lots of research outdoors, and um, it was a great opportunity to really get to to learn about Costa Rica and to get to know the country and to to work on my Spanish. And it wasn't too long after I moved down there that my husband decided he was going to move down there too. So, um, you know, we did the whole long distance thing where he'd come and visit for a week here, week there. And finally he just took the plunge, quit his job and he moved down there too. So we were two young kids in our early twenties with, you know, low paying jobs, but in a really great country with, a lot of opportunity. Those are, when I look back on those years, they're, they're really happy memories. Mm-hmm. Um, just lots of shenanigans and, and fun times and, you know, probably some stupid behavior and we're lucky we didn't get in any trouble. And my position at, in Costa Rica was for one year. So um, as that was coming closer, we decided that we, we actually wanted to stay in Central America if it was possible. We thought it would be really cool if we could manage an eco-lodge. And we just started telling people this. We just put it out into the universe and said, we want to run an eco-lodge somewhere in Central America. doesn't matter what country. And sure enough, one day somebody emailed us and said, hey, I remember you guys talking about this eco-lodge idea that you have. There's actually somebody looking for a couple to run an eco-lodge in Panama, So we contacted the person and this is back in the days of, um, internet cafes. So it's like communication wasn't texting. It was, you know, you had to like make time to go to the internet cafe and and check your email. And, um, we actually lied and said we were married to get the interview because we were not married. We were definitely not married, but we figured, you know, well, we're going to get married. So it's Okay. So we interviewed for the job, ended up getting it, and um, so after our time in Costa Rica was up, we moved to the Caribbean coast of Panama on this very remote area where there wasn't even a road to get there. So if you want to go to this eco-lodge, you have to either land in the San Blas Islands, which is a a sovereign nation, and take a boat there, Um, or you had to get a long boat ride from a different uh, port up the northern coast. And that job was really cool. Um, The problems we had in that job were things like, um, you know, what do we do with this dead whale that just washed up on shore? Like, how are we going to get rid of the dead whale? Are we going to tow it off the beach with the boat? There was a human trafficking problem where we were. So we were getting people um, that were from Hong Kong, but they had South American passports. Can't remember what country their, their passports were from, but they were getting dropped off near our, our lodge with absolutely no resources. So, you know, those things were stressful, but when I look back on that, that's pretty fun stress, not human, tra- I'm not calling human trafficking fun, but the, those types of challenges that, you know, I mean, I don't have to deal with dead whales or alligators or, um, you know, high seas or medical emergencies when there's no way to leave where we are, things like that. So looking back on it now, We probably weren't the best fit for that job. Like we weren't quite mature enough. We didn't have the experience, but I think we did a pretty good job. But the lodge ended up closing. So we came back to Chicago with no plan B. We had no exit strategy. Didn't even know the word, the words exit strategy until somebody asked if we had one. So we came back to Chicago with no plan and my husband started working for a company that expedites passports. And we had had some experience with this because when we were in Panama, we would always have one or two days where we had a very small window to go get our visas expedited. And we had a guy that if you paid him an extra 200 bucks, he could get you to the front of the line and take care of everything. No problem. Um, So now my husband, Rob, was kind of that guy here in Chicago. So we saw the concept of the business and after a few months thought, you know, this is something we could do on our own. We just really need a laptop to get started and a website. You know, it wasn't an extreme cost to us to get started and we had absolutely nothing to lose, which I think is key when you're thinking about taking that plunge. It's a hell of a lot easier when, you know, there's nothing to lose. There was nothing in the savings account. We didn't have another plan. So why not? So here we are. Um, I think 13 years later, we still have our business. Um, it's called Swift Passport and Visa Services. We help individuals and corporations get US passports in as little as a business day. And we help people get visas to countries like China or India or Russia that require that extra paperwork in advance to entering the country.
1: Good resource to have um, in your Rolodex for sure. You yes. need to travel
2: quickly. Yeah. So you are... <laughs> and you'll be surprised at some point, someone you know will need that. And you'll say, I actually can help you with that. Did you guys have any difficulty getting out of Panama or anything? No, we had a, a kitten and we weren't willing to part with the kitten. His name was Bill. And so we did have to stay longer to get his shots and everything, which was kind of funny because when we flew with him they looked at the records and he had a hyphenated last name because we weren't married. And they just thought it was the funniest thing that a cat would have a hyphenated last name. And they, they didn't actually ever end up looking at the paperwork. So little did we know we didn't need to stick around um, for Bill's paperwork, but, but we did and, and we successfully brought him home.
1: You know, there's another part to your story because that's not where it ends. The story is your passion now your podcast, The Donor Diaries. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your journey into the transplant world and what that means to you these days. And
2: In 2011, my dad had a life-saving liver transplant. And when you need a liver transplant, you can get it one of two ways. You can get one from a deceased donor So that's somebody who signed the back of their driver's license and agreed to donate their organ upon death. However, most people don't realize that I think it's something like one out of 200 people die in a way where they can donate their organs. So most people who want to be organ donors can't end up being one because they don't die in a hospital setting. So you can get a liver from a deceased donor or you can get one from a living donor. The way it works with the living donor is, um, like Holly, let's say you need a liver transplant, they could cut up to 60% of Kristen's liver out of her, transplant it into you, and then both of your livers then grow back to their full size, which is really amazing. It's like a starfish. And um, it's just such a smart organ in that respect. And a good fun fact is is you're supposed to eat something like 5,000 calories per day after you donate part of your liver. So it's a great opportunity to drink milkshakes. So um, my dad wasn't able to get a living donor. He needed a full liver. So he had to wait. And we waited about a year. And that year was, it was a little bit stressful. It wasn't awful, but there was a lot of running to the hospital because we thought that there was a liver available, but then it would turn out that that liver wasn't viable. So they'd send us home without the new liver. And that happened four or five times, and they were always on a holiday. Uh, and then he finally got the winning liver. And he's doing beautifully. He's he's really had no setbacks this entire time that he's had his new liver. I mean, it was a new lease on life. Um, and when that happened, you know, we knew that this day of happiness for us, we were celebrating that you know, the hard part was over that that was somebody else's worst day. And I often think about the mother of the person who donated because we know it was somebody um, young, in their late 20s, probably. And I think about that mother and the fact that she had to make a really hard decision to donate his organs. Um, Because when you do that, it delays the death and there's lots of questions, and you're already dealing with something extremely difficult. And I am so grateful for her and to whoever made that decision because it saved my dad's life. And taking something like that, like receiving a gift like that, is very powerful. And to me, when somebody gives you something like that, it's important that you pay it forward and you don't just let it stop. And yes, I, you know, I've always been signed up to be an organ donor on my driver's license, but, you know, I, I started learning more about kidney donation and um, I thought, well, that's something I could do. And that can help multiple people because with the kidney donation, one donor can be a catalyst for a chain of organ donations. So let's say um, you got your liver transplant, Holly, you're, you're set with your liver, but now you need a kidney. And Kristen has a kidney for you now. So if Kristen's willing to donate to you, but she's not a match for you, there's a solution to that. And it's called paired donation. So let's picture six different couples and each has an incompatible donor and recipient pair. They're ready to go. They're just not matches. So what happens is, is somebody like me comes in and I had nobody to donate to. So I donate my kidney to the first person. So that could be you, Holly. And the agreement is, is that then Kristen will donate her kidney to the next pair of incompatible donors and recipients. And that can go on and on and on and on. And um, sometimes it happens within a day or a few days. Other times it happens over, you know, six months or the really long chains can go even longer than that. Um, but it's exciting stuff, and and I thought that's something I want to do, and I want to make sure that my kidneys, you know, that the gift of doing this, since I can do it once, is maximized. So you know, let's do it, let's do this, and let's start a chain and help as many people as possible. So uh, it was November twenty second, twenty sixteen. I did donate. Um, I know my kidney went to Texas, but that's all I know. Um, they let you write the recipient, and the recipient's allowed to write the donor. Um, but they don't, you know, like, so I wrote the letter, he got the the recipient, got the letter, but they have selected not to respond back, which is actually fairly common. Um, so for that reason, I don't know who it is. And I do know that, um, the chain went across several States. So the person who my kidney went to had a loved one whose kidney went to California. And then after that, I, I really don't know what happened, but, Um, I do know there was kidneys flown all over the United States for several weeks, and it was a really exciting, meaningful thing to be a part of and to be the catalyst for. And I think if we can do this, we should do this. Um, You know, I don't think it's for everybody, and I'm not suggesting everybody donate their kidney, but I was in a place in life where I don't have kids. I had a business that was going to be just fine without me if I was out of commission for a few weeks. And I was grateful and I wanted to show a way to, I wanted to have a way to show my gratitude. And, um, and that's what I did. It was, it was very great.
1: You know, we talk about gratitude and how important it is in life. You've taken that even a step further than just being grateful. You did something with it. You created a change in the world because of your gratitude. So that's, it's really touching.
2: Well, thank you. Then you
1: decided to get involved in promoting this more. So tell us about
2: that. Sure. So one statistic that I really love is that when somebody donates their kidney, it doesn't only positively impact the recipient, but studies show that donors are actually happier. They have a boost in well-being after donating that with most donors that I've met, lasts a lifetime. So this is a solution to a major problem in our country. Kidney disease is a huge problem. People, 13 people die a day waiting for a kidney. And there's a solution here that not only impacts the recipient positively, but also the donor. I think more people would step forward to do this if they just understood what was involved. So there's been several things I've been involved with to to do that. The first is a nonprofit that um, my dad and I started shortly after his transplant called Transplant Village. And we help patients at Northwestern on several levels to be able to smoothly navigate the transplant process, whether they're a donor or recipient, because it can be very scary. And there's a lot of unknowns. But if you have somebody to guide you along that's already been on the other side, it's it's very reassuring and we can help these patients in ways that, not that the medical community can't, but I think in the in a way that the medical medical community doesn't, you know, like we can prepare people for the things that they don't necessarily talk about in a hospital clinical setting. So there's transplant village where we're helping the patients and the donors go through the process. And we also raise money for the high risk, high reward initiatives that they're doing over there. Like you might have seen um, in the news in the last few weeks that they're they're able to now transplant kidney, pig kidneys into humans. I've simplified that. It's not a done deal yet. So we do not, we we are not yet able to rely on pigs for our kidney shortage. But you know, maybe in 10, 15 years we can. So we help raise money for those types of studies because it's extremely important. And then the other thing I'm doing is this podcast. It's called Donor Diaries. The purpose of Donor Diaries is to create a library of audio that somebody who thinks, hey, this appeals to me. I think I might want to donate an organ. What's this all about and what's involved? I'd love for them to be able to go to, you know, once season one's done, to season one and to really get all the nuts and bolts of what they need to make an informed decision. And I'm trying to keep it light and airy and fun, um, but I'm just trying to make it engaging so that you know people can listen and enjoy it and learn about kidney donation it it doesn't need to turn everybody into a kidney donor but if it if it turns one person into a kidney donor that would be pretty amazing
1: yeah it absolutely does so is there you know I know about kidney donation live kidney donation clearly you can donate a portion of your liver are there other pieces that can be donated While you're alive, are there other things that people
2: donate? Yeah, you can donate part of your pancreas, part of a lung or a full lung. I don't know how common pancreas donation is, but the lung donation is very uncommon because it negatively impacts the well-being of the donor. Mm -hmm. With a kidney donation and a liver donation, it does not negatively impact the donor in the long term. So with your kidney, this is great to know, but we have two but you only need one to live. And when you remove one, the other one, especially if you're a young person, will double in size and easily does the work of two kidneys. So by doing this, you're not taking a bullet and saying, well, I'm going to live this lesser, slower version of my life because I'm I'm going to be weak and have one kidney. That's just that's just not the case. Same with liver. But yeah, the, the pancreas, um, lung, and then of course there's tissue. So you can donate all sorts of tissues, Um, while you're alive and but the other organs like you know heart obviously you can't donate that while you're alive so that's something that we rely on the deceased donor wait list for
1: right right
2: and you can actually donate your um, uterus too in some hospitals so there's been a few uterus transplants where women have donated their uterus to another woman who would like to conceive but needs a new uterus to do so and it's been effective So I'm curious,
1: Lori, about the interaction between the nonprofit that you started and and how that actually started and what were some of the steps that you decided you wanted to take in order to get that off the ground and out into the world?
2: Sure. So the brains behind the starting of Transplant Village was my dad. And he was already planning on how he was going to give back before he even had his transplant. So um, Northwestern is where he had his transplant. And they approached him about some fundraising initiatives, uh, you know, after he had fully recovered and was okay. And he came back with a proposal of Transplant Village, which is going to help in three ways with patient education, patient resources, and uh, philanthropy. So he, he's the brain behind starting it. And now it's it's over 10 years old now, which is pretty amazing. The development's been slow. I mean, when you work with the hospital, it's hard to get anything done quickly. There's lots of levels of approval, but we're not the hospital, we're the nonprofit. So there are some things we can do more quickly. The program that I work with over there is called the Kidney Champion Program, And this is a two hour workshop that we do on Zoom right now due to COVID. It's once a month and we teach basic kidney education, followed by really amazing strategies to find a living donor on social media. And I mean, when can you, if you're on Facebook, can you guys think of seeing an article on Facebook where somebody was seeking a kidney?
1: I absolutely can. I've been quite amazed lately, um, billboards driving around town billboards with people looking for a kidney. I, I, you know, the first time I saw it, I was a little bit shocked, a little bit surprised, but then I was like, Oh, that's kind of an interesting, interesting approach, but yeah, social media. So you help patients conduct a social media campaign in order to find a kidney
2: yeah, we teach them the strategies to do it on their own, and then we have resources who can help them. One of the guests on your podcast, Amber Khan, is actually one of the people who makes these pages and helps people run them. Um, and it is effective. I mean, it's more effective for some people than others. but if you can if you can make it go viral or even make a post go viral, that's all it takes. I'm currently working on an organ donation documentary right now as well. And in the process of um, there's 17 people, non-directed donors who are going to be telling stories on stage in a Ted talk like fashion. And then we're going to use the content of those stories for a PBS documentary. So in the process of finding our 17, 18 donors we read 75 stories of people who did what I did. And I can't tell you how many times Facebook, Facebook, Facebook was part of their story, whether it was, I was reading on Facebook, a news article, or I saw a cry for help on Facebook. And sometimes people see that and they don't end up donating to the person who posted, but it plants the seed and, and, a lot of these donors saw something on Facebook and then they go down this wormhole of researching what does it mean to be a living donor and they it's almost like they become compelled or obsessed with doing it and they step forward. Many of them describe it as a lightning strike. So uh-huh. with this documentary we're hoping that you know the purpose isn't to recruit donors, but I do think that a byproduct is that there's people who are susceptible to that lightning strike who are going to get the lightning strike when they watch our documentary.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So different strategies for different folks, you know, what are some of the things that people think about when they're considering, do I want to do this?
2: Well, they want to know they're going to be okay afterwards and that it's not going to negatively impact their life in the future. That's a big one. Another one is time off work and you know, how do I come out so that I'm not financially stressed due to this? Now, when you donate an organ, the recipient's um, insurance covers all of the medical expenses, the workup beforehand. So you don't have to worry about any of that. But typically there are expenses like, oh, I had to travel to Chicago from Wisconsin and spend the night and there's a hotel bill. Or I have four kids and I need to hire a nanny to move in for two weeks while I recover, or you know, I make money at XYZ jobs and I'm not going to be able to work for a month. How do I? How do I make up for that lost the lost wages? So that's a big one. And um, no donor should ever have to pay anything out of a pocket if they feel it in their heart to donate. That's just not right. And there's tons of organizations that make sure that donors are reimbursed for those types of expenses. I personally invite people to reach out to me if they need mm-hmm. help finding those resources because there's enough out there where if you want to do this, you shouldn't have to worry about money. I'm not saying you'll make money and you know mm. that should never be a motivation to donate. No, I don't think so. Yeah, but you should at least break even. I think right. that that's a very fair, yeah. fair thing. I think the payment
1: is the joy you feel For having saved someone else's life.
2: I agree a hundred percent. So I'd say those are the biggest ones. And then, um, my favorite one that people say is, well, I've got kids or I, you know, what if I need to donate my kidney to somebody who matters more to me in the future, which I get, I do get that. Right. But there's this amazing program where you can have what's called a family voucher through the National Kidney Registry. So Holly, if you want to donate, you know, and don't have an intended recipient, this program allows you to name, I think, three people in your family that if they ever need a kidney, they'll get one. So it's kind of like an insurance policy for those people who you are worried you might have to give a kidney to later. And as you can imagine, nobody ever redeemed, like it's very unlikely that people are ever going to redeem that, you know, that one of those people are actually going to need a kidney in the future. But if they do, mm-hmm. what a great insurance policy.
1: Yeah. So they kind of move to the front of the list. That's what exactly. you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I have learned so many things. Um, you know, I don't even know where to start. It has opened my eyes to so many different things. So you have a spirit that is. Vibrant, adventurous, curious, and so giving. And all the things that you're doing just seem to bring that all forward. You know, the work that you and your husband, business that you started, and this foundation with your dad. And I really, really encourage people to check into the donor diaries.
2: You know, typically when we talk about this topic, most people have some sort of connection to... A family or friend who's been on dialysis Mm -hmm. um, or who's had a transplant or needs a transplant or died waiting for a transplant. So it's, it's, it's a really big problem.
1: Is there a specific age that kidney disease starts to become an issue for people?
2: You know, a lot of kidney disease is caused by obesity and Mm -hmm. high blood pressure. I know that the greatest, the, the age range who's, who needs transplants most right now are the boomers. But, you know, some diseases are genetic, so people are born with them.
1: Well, this has been really an amazing conversation. Thank you for sharing some of your life's journey.
0: Thank you so much for listening in on this latest episode of Uplifting Women podcast. Holly and Kristen appreciate your dedication to Uplifting Women and look forward to you joining them again soon. This podcast is sponsored by UpliftingWomen.net as well as Holly Tesca Coaching and Consulting and Regent Leadership Group. Please visit your favorite platform where you found this podcast to leave a review. If you are an uplifting woman or a man who champions women's success with a story to share, Kristen and Holly would love to talk to you. Please visit upliftingwomen.net and leave us a message.